Welcome to Now I See, eye-opening stories from the formerly faithful. I'm your host, Amber White, and here, me and my guests share our experiences in loving and leaving rigid faith systems. Together, we shine a light on the dark corners of these institutions and share the joys of rebuilding life on our own terms. I promise you'll leave inspired, even if you are a little teary-eyed. Hi, and welcome back to Now I See. I'm your host, Amber White, and I am talking with another therapist today, just in time for the holidays. (laughs) Today, I'm talking with Emilia Richardson of Sparrow Soul Work here in South Carolina. Emilia practices radically open DBT and specializes in therapy for folks working through religious trauma, deconstruction, and over-control. It's pretty amazing stuff. Admittedly, I am personally very drawn to her work because of my own struggles with over-control and perfectionism. You'll hear a few examples of that later in this episode. It's hard to say where exactly the over-control and perfectionism started. Was it nature or nurture? The more I've examined this in my life, the more I think it's both. I think I had a predisposition for struggling with these things that was reinforced by the nature they received in the church and at home. I was raised on the idea that whatever I did needed to be good enough that if Jesus were to come and see it, he'd be proud of the work I did and not ashamed of my efforts. I was brought up in a theology that would use the word grace, but clung to legalism for dear life. They loved the verse, faith without works is dead. It's a great one if you want to guilt and mobilize a congregation into succumbing to specific ideas about how a person should behave. These teachings stick with a lot of us who decide to leave our faith. When you've internalized that your performance equates to the level of approval and love you'll get from your community, it's hard to understand and accept that love and acceptance don't really work that way. I have spent ungodly, no pun intended, time and effort on being excellent throughout my life, and I've spent years poring over and mourning the times that I wasn't. I lost a job that was absolutely not the right job for me nearly 10 years ago that I still have nightmares about. I have worked my ass off in every romantic relationship. I have worked my ass off in every job. I have worked my ass off to make strained familial relationships work. 
it hasn't been particularly healthy on my part. And I gotta tell you, not one time has my over-control or perfectionism really paid off. Sure, I get recognized for it on occasion, but overall, it's done more to keep me stuck than move me forward. All the striving, all the late nights, all the stress, it wasn't really worth it. I've been doing a lot of healing work on these aspects of myself over the last two years, and I am regularly blown away by how different my life looks now than it did two years ago. It feels really good, and I've been able to widen my window of tolerance for things taking time. Right now, my fridge needs to be reorganized and cleaned, but I've been working on this podcast all day, so I'll likely do it tomorrow or sometime next week, and read tonight instead. This is new for me. I am pacing myself at home, at work, and most recently, on getting married. Surprise! (laughs) My husband Justin and I eloped on November 19th in a lovely, simple ceremony. It was just us, an officiant, and a photographer. I'll put some photos up on Instagram for y'all to see, but it was a huge deal for me to keep this simple and not try to make it perfect. And I have to say, it felt so good to prioritize the day being easy, fun, and low stress over it being aesthetically perfect and under control. I checked my perfection at the door, and you know what? So many things turned out better because of it. Anyone who's left high control religion can tell you what a big deal it is to let go of something that is traditionally made such a fuss over. It felt like a major step forward in living my life the way I really want to, on my own terms, and with only my and Justin's opinions in mind. Two years ago, I wouldn't have done that. So here's to healing and growth that makes life so much sweeter, easier, and better. I am sending all of my best wishes for your own healing this holiday season, whatever that might look like. All right, let's get into this fun and insightful conversation with Emilia. It's so great to see you today and have you yeah. on the bike. People are like, see you. Yes, I get to see her. Unfortunately, <laughs> you do not. <laughs> but I'm very glad to have you here today and to share your story and share your experience with my guests because I think you have this incredible insight into what it can be like to come out of these situations and try to work through the aftermath of the things in our own minds that get us tripped up. So I'm excited and thank you for sharing with us today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so pumped to do this. So let's start out by having you share your background a little bit. What Mm. faith were you involved in? What was that like for you? Um, (laughs) And kind of what led you to start questioning it? You know, just the light, Mm. simple things. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'm like, mm, how do I make this answer not a thousand years long? I grew up very Christian and obviously that's a spectrum. So I spent my like formative, like birth to fifth grade in Southern Baptist, not fundamentalist Southern Baptist, just like good old Robert rules of order, Southern Baptist. Classic. I know. Like back when we just, I think our church just started to have a contemporary service when I was like in fourth grade where you could wear jeans and they would play Chris Tomlin, you know, it wasn't just like, big deal. it was, we were radical. Um, And then there was like a church schism as, as there is want to be in the Southern Baptist church. Um, And so from there, like my family went to a lot of different non-denominational evangelical churches. We like helped start a couple of plants that ended up failing um, and then ended up in a multi-site mega church, essentially like my church that I attended from like eighth grade through college was not a mega church. It was like maybe a hundred people ish. It met inside of an elementary school, you know, but the entire, because it was multi-site, like we were the Greenville campus. And so like the mothership was in Charleston um, and had like dozens of other campuses. So we have a like very mega church vibe with like yeah. a very like home church vibe. So I think when I first started like having questions was probably in high school. I went to an arts high school in the upstate and I was meeting people outside of like my faith community. I was like making very good friends for the first time with like girls who read Cosmopolitan, yeah. with like boys who were flamboyantly gay. Yeah. And I was like, I really like you people, but also you're of Satan. So like, what do I do with that? I don't know. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> um, very, very, very complicated. Um, and th- through a lot of those like challenges, <laughs> I did, I think what any like very devout good girl does. Um, I decided to go to a Christian college to be able to ask all of my questions, <laughs> like without being quote unquote, led astray. Like that was quite literally what I wanted. So I ended up going to Wheaton College in Illinois, mm-hmm. the Harvard of Christian school. Yes. Um, and I had a very good experience there um, because I was always going to have a good experience there. I was talking to um, someone recently about like <laughs> the like thing Wheaton really wanted like the culture at Wheaton was we're going to go change the world and you're going to go find your husband. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Like I would love to go do both <laughs> of those things. So that's the perfect good Christian girl. Genuinely. Goal I was set. Like a white straight girl. I was never going to have a bad time at Wheaton. Ask other people who don't have those, like qual- those qualities and you will get a different story. Yeah. But it was when I left Wheaton, I decided I wanted to be a missionary. I wanted to go work with refugees. And I worked very hard to do fundraising. And I did not come together. And I was sitting with a fundraising coach and they were like, Emily, you're 21. All of your friends are 21. They have no money. Like this is not going to probably happen for you. And I was heartbroken. I was like, I have done everything right. 
this whole time. I have dotted all of the I's and crossed all of the T's and I've worked so hard and I followed the rubric. And now you're just telling me I'm going to be a receptionist at a law firm. And like, that's it. I always felt like the, the trajectory of my life was like up and up and up and up and up. And so the idea of like up and up and up. And then like, I just felt like I got pushed off a cliff. Mm. And I remember sitting in a like women's Bible study. We were reading through the book of Mark, I think. And there's a part where Jesus says, like, ask in my name and it shall be given to you. And I was Mm -hmm. like, bullshit, dude. Bullshit. (laughs) I've asked for everything in your name. I wanted this career. I wanted to go live abroad. I wanted Mm. to have like a soulmate and I asked it in your name and I'm sitting here single living in my childhood bedroom Mm. as a receptionist at a law firm with absolutely no plan. Like I've got nothing. Like what, what did I go do all of this for? Um, and so that was my first big deconstruction and that was when I first like really, I think fully deconstructed from evangelical life. Like I ended up like I stopped going to my family's non-denom church and ended up joining an Episcopalian church. And that felt really Mm. lovely. Yeah. And that was a really nice landing spot for me for a while. I feel like, um, you know, the like, you could take the girl out of fundamentalism, but it's really hard to take fundamentalism out of the girl. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am That's familiar. so much of my, <laughs> it's like, oh, I just kind of like jumped from different and I kept making things rigid rubrics, rigid rules every type, every place I would go. So the Episcopalian church, I was like, great. Everyone in leadership here isn't all related to each other. Like, um, there is some like oversight here. There is no cult of personality. We Mm. have a like corporal, corporate um, confession, which I found very soothing of like, we are all going to show up and say out loud that we don't have our shit together Mm. um, as opposed to non-denom life where you like walk in and you're like, I'm great and God is good and all the time he is good and the end. Mm Mm-hmm. Then (laughs) from there, there's a whole little period. It's a whole other story of how I decided to become a therapist, Mm -hmm. but ended up becoming a therapist. Look at you. (laughs) Ta-da. I went, I got my master's degree in marriage and family therapy from Converse. I was working with my associate's license inside of a school with traumatized children in a Title I school. And I realized that my eating disorder that I thought I had like healed in college through the grace of Jesus, Mm. um, had just come raging right back. (laughs) So there might be a deeper issue than your trust in Jesus is what I'm hearing. (laughs) Maybe. I, mm -hmm. it was when I went into (laughs) recovery for the second time with like a proper eating disorder specialist therapist. And I was like, we didn't do any of this stuff we're doing the first time whoops i know and i can't fault my first therapist too much honestly because i was a really good liar i was so good Mm. at like walking in and doing the like i was struggling yesterday but i feel better about it now and she was like well then i have nothing to do with this (laughs) like i can't help if you've already therapized yourself then like what am i going to do with that so it was in when i like properly entered ed recovery And I was doing all of the like 
journaling work and therapy work and realizing that a significant amount of my eating disorder language was religious language. Mm. And then I started having like anxiety attacks when we would drive up to the parking lot at the church. And I was like, I can't get out of the car. Mm. I can't go listen to scripture being read out loud, even though that was something I found very like comforting, like a year before that, I was just like, "Uh uh-uh, this is all the same in my brain. Wow. And I can't do it. And so I haven't really been, (laughs) I haven't, I haven't attended a church really since Mm. TBH. (laughs) Yeah. Which feels really bananas, but I just, yeah, I was like, I have to take a full step back and in that, has been, um, it's been really helpful. My like ed recovery went way smoother after that. That's so interesting. Do you feel like maybe you offset or like moved the religious trauma recovery or the religious trauma into the eating world? To yeah. Kind of offset it. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think really I mean, I, which I didn't like, I have always like told my therapist, like, dude, we're going to have to get to some of this, like, what do I do with God and Jesus stuff? Because it's been literally my whole life. Like I went to a college whose mission statement is for Christ and his kingdom. And I was like, yes. So (laughs) I'm going to have to figure out what my life purpose is if it's not this. Right. But let's figure out how to like get out of bed, figure out how to eat breakfast. Like I just didn't – yeah, for anyone who's been through like eating disorder recovery, it it does it does feel like you kind of move back into being a child a little bit of like, mm. how do I do this? Yeah, relearning, <laughs> relearning really basic skills of how to take care of oneself. Mm-hmm. I think by being able to honor my body, being able to mm. honor my intuition, really helped expedite a lot of that. religious unlearning and relearning as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. I was thinking as you were talking about sitting in the church parking lot, not being able to go in, Mm -hmm. do you remember enough to be able to describe what that felt like in your body? Because something I think a lot of us who are deconstructing or learning is to reconnect mind, body, spirit, Mm. and, and listen to our bodies because they sometimes tell us first. Yes. Yeah. It was a lot of physical tension. It was a lot of physical tension, especially like in my abdomen. It felt like my stomach like clamped up and sank a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I could just remember like how like tight my shoulders were, how like close my arms were to my body, mm-hmm. which now I, I'm able to look back now and be like, oh yeah, I was very, I very much felt under threat. Like my body was reacting from its sympathetic nervous system. Like I was being threatened. (laughs) Um, At the time, I didn't think that. At the time, I was like, why am I being so weird? Right. And my husband like put the car in park and I was just like, I can't, I can't. And he was like, what do you mean? And then he looked at me and I think he just saw that like my face, my facial expression had kind of gone flat. He saw my body language and he was like, so we're not going inside. And I was like, I, I don't think I can do that. And he was like, that's totally fine. Like, yeah. that's totally fine. Let's just go to the Starbucks. Let's get you a coffee. We'll just drive around. We were living, just as a side note, we were living in my parents' basement at the time. My parents uh-huh. were still very devout. So we had to like 
kill the hour. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so you made your own church, Starbucks we, in the car church. Starbucks in the car church. And then I think we ended up doing that exact thing maybe one other time mm. where I was mm. like, that's not going to happen again. <laughs> I'm going to be better. <laughs> this is going to be fun. And then again, we like parked and I was like, and he, and Kyle just turned to me and looked at me and he was like, are we going in? And I went, nope. Cause it just, yeah, my whole body like clamped up. It clamped like up into yeah. itself. And I was like, I, no, there was just no reason to force myself to go do it. I think if we were meeting somebody, I would have been like, okay, fine. I would just have, like suppressed that. Um, like I just would have moved, you know what I mean? Yeah. I would have like pushed through it. It wasn't like a debilitating sense of dissociation. Right. But because it was like, this is my own free will. And no, <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. I'm glad you had somebody who was supportive and willing to like see you for where you were at and not yes. try to not make you feel worse. Right. No, Kyle is the Why best. are you being so weird? <laughs> I know he, I remember asking him on our very first date. I was like, um, cause we were introduced by a mutual friend who was an atheist. And so we both thought we were atheists and that made us both very anxious. Um, <laughs> and I was like, are you um, like, how do you feel about Jesus? Um, so funny. I know like what a bananasville sentence. Um, <laughs> and what he told me at that time was I'm not a strong Christian man. Like I do believe in God. I like communing with him in nature. My grandfather's a Baptist preacher. Like I'm very familiar with lots of like Christianese stuff. When it, but when it comes to like my actual faith, it's I'm not a strong Christian man. So if that's a deal breaker, I understand. And I was like, I don't think it's a deal breaker. And to this day, I'm always like, praise heaven. Yes. <laughs> like I'm so glad you weren't a strong Christian man because it allowed him to do things like look at me and go, okay, we don't have to go inside. It's fine. Mm. Isn't it interesting how it's, for those of us who have left the church and are deconstructing, like we find that radical acceptance mm. for the first time sometimes outside of the church. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it's <laughs> the thing I've been able to maybe put into words better over time is how bad faith communities are at dealing with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And so doubt, yes. deconstruction, pain, tragedy, loss, failure, very, very bad. Yeah. At yeah, just like allowing the uncertainty to be uncertain and being able to go like, okay, this doesn't have to be anything. It's not, let's just like, mm -hmm. What's the right, what, like, what do we need to do in the next 10 minutes? Yeah. Like faith communities are very bad at that. Very, very bad at that. Yeah. They have to be like, well, think about heaven and how you'll be there one day. And now all your earthly problems have no meaning and no value. And totally. No or this is all for some like greater purpose. This is mm. just one thread in the greater tapestry of your life and you don't understand it yet. And it's like, of course you don't fucking understand it and how does that help me now like <laughs> like yeah. sometimes it's helpful to gesture beyond the minutia of the present moment but for the most part like people if you're in a moment of suffering mm. it's going to grip all of your attention and so sure. being able to say like 
you shouldn't be paying attention to that is basically like telling someone like, don't think about oranges. Just don't think about them, about how they're orange and round mm-hmm. and how they smell nice when you open them. Just don't think about it. I'm currently thinking about strawberries since you said that. So yeah. <laughs> it worked. See, you <laughs> have superior spiritual abilities. <laughs> oh my goodness. You know, I mean, this conversation we're having right now has reminded me of the way that I learned about mental health in the church. Oh, yeah. And I'll be curious to hear if you had similar experiences. Oh, man. Yeah. So very anti-medication of any kind. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a huge stigma. It's social because I'm in this deep South church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also part of the part of the dogma, part of their belief system is that you do not need medication ever for any reason Mm. to help you with a mental problem. Your Mm. problem is a faith problem. Mm. And so things like, you know, taking something for anxiety or depression or, you know, um, most recently, and this, this still infuriates me. So I'm going to talk about it very openly. Oh, I'm so excited. Even though it, I don't know. I'm not trying to start arguments with my family, but I'm very like furious about this. Okay. There is a young girl in my family who struggles with, she's hearing voices, right? Okay. Yeah. She's having, um, yes, auditory hallucinations. Yeah. You know, if you look past the spiritual, look past that and into well-studied research on this, there are reasons this happened. She's had a very traumatic life, a very difficult time. And she could use some some therapy, probably some psychiatry, some psychiatry she to help needs like both. process. Yes. Yeah. Needs a both. Maybe, maybe some medication. Because yeah. there's something happening here. Right. Just to help improve daily functioning in the meantime. Yes. Right. Well, and to give her some peace. Yes. Right. She's a child. She's very young. She's not even a teenager yet. This is a yeah. very young, you know, she's had a very hard life. And yeah. the family is very much uh, convinced that it is a demon talking to her, and it makes me want to cry just like thinking about it right now. Because this this idea that there can't be scientifically based, factual here on Earth in this moment, as we were just talking about, in this moment, issues that can be dealt with in this moment, mm-hmm. it has to be a demon from hell haunting this girl, yeah. which then offsets the fact that her parents have treated her horribly. Yeah. From the time she was born, from yeah, before she was born. Accountability. Right. Right. And then we're offsetting this onto some spiritual warfare. Mm-hmm. And now this little girl doesn't get help. Right. And so I think about the way that I learned about mental health and the way I learned about the spiritual world mm-hmm. and it was, it was mental health. <laughs> yeah. Right? Your problem is spiritual, not mental, not physical. Is um, oh my gosh, yeah, and I think devastating, totally. And for her, like, and for for me, and for so many, it's putting yourself at war with yourself. Mm-hmm. And so yes. often, what I'm saying to clients is, I'm like, it makes a lot of sense why your brain did that. <laughs> like, I understand it's not very helpful. I understand it's not comfortable, and I understand it's not where you want to be, which is why you are sitting with me and we're going to hopefully move you to a new place but your brain like your body's not stupid your brain's not stupid and so it is trying in all moments to keep you well and keep you healthy 
And sometimes it takes some pretty extreme ways to do that, mm-hmm. that again, aren't comfortable and maybe don't help you right now. But like, They're let's start to from talk, a place of self-compassion, right? To be able mm-hmm. to like, like, if we're just, if we're able to be, f- to make f- friends with that part of yourself instead of feeling it as demonic and something that needs to be, that is like entirely evil and needs to be banished. Right. Like those aren't necessarily guarantees health, mental health professionals can make. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I can't just be like 100% all of your anxiety, poof, gone. Like that's You're not not a miracle worker, it turns out. (laughs) No, no. I, um, Sometimes I use tarot cards in my session as a form of like to help someone focus externally to help mm-hmm. an emotion stop from being so overwhelming and pressing in their body and being mm-hmm. able to go like, let's focus on an image. Mm-hmm. And the thing I always say is I'm not a witch. I'm not right. a witch. I don't have a crystal ball. So often my like, uh, my clients who are just really wonderful rule followers will turn to me and be like, what do I do? Tell me what to do. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't have a crystal ball, babe. Like, I don't know. <laughs> also, you you're the, just on your life, you would know better than I would. I'm just yeah. here to help you with the process yeah. of it, not the content really? piece of it. But back to your um, question about um, how I learned about mental health in evangelical world. The short answer is we didn't fucking talk about it. <laughs> So you didn't. It just wasn't spoken of. It's not yeah. a strong st- – like, I'm sure there was a strong stance on medicine. We just – it was never, ever talked about. And yeah. it's so funny to me, like – and maybe it was and I filtered it out because I have a sibling with a very severe mental illness and they needed mm. to be hospitalized multiple times and they needed to be on medication I don't know how long they've been on medication, but I'm going to guess probably since early high school. Mm-hmm. And so it was always very clear to me. It's like a genetic illness. Like I have like uncles and aunts with this. Th- like I just, mm-hmm. so it's just like, yeah, no, for real. Like we need medicine. Yeah. <laughs> like medicine is needed. So that was never a thing. But when it came to like my raging perfectionism and anxiety, the like mild, obsessive compulsive stuff that would happen mm-hmm. like that was just that was when it would be like just cast your cares on him um, oh think of think like there's a reason my um practice is called sparrow therapy <laughs> because it's the like think of the sparrows and it's like that's not sufficient it's a nice idea and i am okay with that being an idea yeah, but just going like, oh, I need to be better. This is an internal problem. And if I just had more faith, if I was just stronger, if I had more discipline, if I had more integrity, then these worries would not be eating away at me. So I never mm-hmm. saw anxiety or depression as like demonic forces. Um, I think, again, like my family situation just made it very clear that like, Mental health is a very real thing. Mental illness is a mm-hmm. very real thing. Yeah. But when it came to, if it, you weren't like straight up in manic episodes, anything below, like, you know, calling an ambulance was like, you could just be better. Come on. Yeah. 
Interesting. So we had a very different experience of that, but it mm. sounds like church wise, it was mm. just unaddressed a lot. Yeah, yeah. Mom's the word. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And now you're a therapist. Ta da. Yay. Amazing how that happens. I, oh my gosh. I was talking to, okay, so my husband was talking to a coworker yesterday and he told me, I didn't know this, but it makes sense that when he tells people, they'll be like, what does your wife do? And he tells people that he's a therapist. Most often the thing he gets is, oh man, I bet you can't get away with anything. And I look at Kyle and I'm like, that is so not our marriage. And he's like, I know they don't understand. And he's like, the mm. thing I want to say, but I never do because I don't want to insult you. I'm like, okay. And he's like, is you guys must not understand that therapists are really broken people. Mm, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I tried laughing. I was like, yes. I was like, you should say this to people to be like, therapists come from deeply broken places. That's why they want to heal everyone else's. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I'm not, I didn't become a therapist because I was interested in like knowing the correct way to have a miscommunication no. argument. <laughs> like, that's no. not, mm-mm. nope, still very human. No. Yeah. Anyways, yes. If that's what therapy was, I wouldn't go. It is wild. Yeah. Like one time um, I was at a friend's bachelorette party and we hired a pure romance person to come in and do like a little demonstration. Um, And so it was, everyone in the room was a therapist. And mm. the pure roommate starts to found this out and she went, Oh my God, don't judge me. And we were all like, it's literally what? our jobs to not judge you. <laughs> You're fine. I know. Good and company. also like we are all like two glasses of wine in. We're so excited you're here to show us lube. Like, go, my friend. Let's have like fun. I know, I like this it. should be a really like fun celebratory experience. We are not gonna be sitting here making side notes of like mm. her body language says blah blah blah. <laughs> She stopped making eye contact at such and such. Like, no, we're, no. no, that is not. <laughs> no. There's such an interesting stigma around therapy, even for folks outside of the church. And I'm sure some of it has to do with the fact that it takes so long to change ideas that get ingrained culturally, right? Sure. So we've seen a lot of images of older men as psychiatrists and psychologists who 100%. are sitting there completely emotionally detached and they seem like they are judging you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? You're making on a notepad. Right. right. <laughs> well, we've all heard the stories and like our grandmothers and great grandmothers experienced very bad psychology. Yes. That told them that their feelings and what they were going through was them being. Was their uterus acting up. Yes. Right. Like we've, you know, there's a reason that the stigma is there. 1,000%. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that that narrative is changing. And I feel like their people are much more receptive to therapy and they're learning. And I think because therapy and like the practice of therapy has grown That's and what, learned. Yes. I'm like, I'm glad that the field of therapy continues <laughs> to grow and evolve because that mental health is too important. Yeah. Like if we didn't believe that, like there are times where I'm sitting with, with someone and they're like, I feel like when they're talking about a complex relationship, whether that's with their faith or with like a human being. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I feel like an idiot. Like I keep expecting this person or this thing to change. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. if I didn't believe that things could change, then I would just go be like a salesperson. Like I would just right. go work at Sephora and talk about lipstick all day and it would be so fun. But like, yeah. I actually think that 
systems can change and that people can change and relationships can change. And that's why I do this. Yeah. Otherwise, again, I would just, I would go talk about Matt Lipstick all day. It'd be so fun. It'd be so fun. As I, I say, as I sit here with zero makeup on. Me either. <laughs> but I love makeup. <laughs> I love makeup so much. Yes. But I don't wear it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It takes too much time. <laughs> well, I'm, I want to get into a little bit of the type of therapy that you do because you have yeah. a really unique and cool way of practicing therapy. And I learned something new from meeting you and talking with you. I had never heard of radically open DBT before. Ta-da. Yeah. But it's so perfect for what I think so many of us are going through in the deconstruction space, especially those of us who were deeply in it and we're trying so hard to perform it to the best of our abilities because yes. there is an outcome of that that's not um easy to live with. No. It makes life hard. Yes. Yeah. No, I have a very unevidence-based theory that people who perform really, really well in rigid cultures, whether that's like a faith community or a cult or a multi-level marketing system mm. or whatever, mm-hmm. have over control because you have to have that like slightly competitive spirit where you're really, you really like rigidity and structure and perfectionism. You really don't like uncertainty, new things, risky things. Mm-hmm. And you're totally like, you're very good at suppressing your own emotions and needs in order to achieve a goal. Like those people, like, first of all, over control people are badasses and also yeah. are wonderful cult members. <laughs> excellent even we are excellent <laughs> beyond a 4.0 gpa genuinely like a solid 4.7 <laughs> i resonate with that <laughs> no i know that was part of the so radically open dbt so first of all the whole the whole thing is called radically open dialectical behavioral therapy, which is just entirely too many syllables. And so it's shortened down to R-O-D-B-T. I usually call it R-O or radically open. Okay. Um, It's a method of therapy that is used to treat personalities of over-control. This is not a personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a type. Okay. So Radically Open DBT came out of, if anyone's familiar with like traditional DBT, which anyone who's like experienced a lot of complex trauma might be because it's so well suited to those individuals, mm-hmm. is working with personalities of under control. And the metaphor I usually use is like, if you imagine a person where their hair is just like everywhere. Like it's just all in front of their face and they can't really see other people and they can't really see what they're doing in front of them because it's just everywhere. DBT helps pull their hair back into like a little low pony. And so that way they can see other people and see what they're doing. Nice. Radically open, on the other hand, you have individuals who are in a very tight ballerina bun. It is pristine (laughs) and is also starting. It is slicked 
back. There is not a hair out of place. And also they're starting to have a raging headache Mm. and they feel like irritable, but they also can't let their hair out of the bun. They would like to be more comfortable, but that's not what they're supposed to be. Mm. And so they're just going to keep going on with this bun. So radically open DBT takes the hair out of the bun and tries to find a more helpful way to have your hair not be all in your face so that way yeah you can actually like be open and be flexible and do what is needed what the situation calls for and yeah so that's it's looking at it's targeting two things one is your emotional openness and receptivity. So we use a lot of mindfulness Mm -hmm. skills to be able to, I have people who are like, I don't know what I'm feeling because they've gotten so good at suppressing their emotion that they just kind of feel numb Mm -hmm. or they're like, I know I'm not happy. Couldn't tell you a word beyond that. Yeah. So we do some mindfulness to be able to do that, but also fundamentally over control is a disease of emotional loneliness. We feel like we have to be a certain way in order to earn belonging and connection, which means we never get to have relationships based in authenticity. Mm. There's always a rubric. Yeah. And if we aren't performing in the rubric, then there's a risk that the relationship's going to fall apart. Mm. And so radically open is also targeting some social signaling to be able to build relationships yeah of like real connections very strong genuine relationships because ultimately we know that that's the biggest mental health protective factor mm-hmm. it is very strong relationships like you could have a wonderful therapist but like, and you can have lots of money and everything can be really successful and your mental health could still be falling apart because if you yeah. don't have a person <laughs> you can call at the end of a really shitty day and just let it all fly and know that they're not going to judge you and be able mm-hmm. to sit in the uncertainty of the pain with you, then like it's, it's going to make painful moments really a true form of suffering. Mm-hmm. This is really insightful and it resonates so much with me because I've definitely spent a lot of my life in an over-control state. Mm-hmm. And I I can even remember times in college where I was trying to make friends and I was doing that by performing services for them and it made them very uncomfortable. Really. Yes. Yes. This is the funny thing mm-hmm. about like, um, sometimes in some ways, like some of the skills I'm teaching are a lot of like, how do you make friends? Because and especially for my people who are coming out of faith and deconstruction things, right? Because like I said, us over control people, man, we are so good. We're so good in rigid faith world. Mm-hmm. But also we we didn't learn how to make friends. We yeah. didn't learn how to ever be ourselves around other people. For some of us, we never really learned how to date i have like some people who are coming out of like purity culture trauma world and they're like 25 30 35 Mm -hmm. going like how the fuck do i do this thing that we everyone else all of my peers seem to have learned when they were 16 and i'm having to learn it now and i don't know what to do i'm like my friend there are skills and i shall teach you yeah and also we have to unpack and grieve Mm -hmm. all of the ways in which you 
didn't get what you needed when you needed it. Yeah. It's a process for sure. Oh, show. Yeah. I think of how many years it took me to even realize I was doing that. And then to try to break it down. And even still, sometimes like I'm a party girl. I like to throw a beautiful yes. dinner party, yes. like a curated themed my friends are coming over and I have four different Indian dishes for us to share. Like, yes, you know, yes, yes, like, yes, yes, yes. And part of that is I enjoy that, right? Sure. But the other part of it is this has to be perfect. such a perfect way. If people are coming over, we need to do this so they know that I yes. love them and that I, you know, a lot of it does come back to a heart center, right? And I think that gets lost in the over control because it seems so much about the stuff, mm-hmm. but there is a heart center to it of wanting to be accepted and loved and to show other people that you accept and love them by performing for them, right? Yeah. Instead of just being, which is a radical love thing. Yes. Yeah. And it ends up reinforcing this belief. This happened. Yes. I unpack acts of services of love language mm-hmm. all the fucking time. Yeah. It absolutely can be like 100%. Not here to not say that, but a lot of times we use acts of service as a way to buy friendship. Yes. And instead of building a friendship, instead mm. of taking the time and again, dealing with the uncertainty of, I really like this person. I really like their vibe. I think they're fun. Do they think I'm cool? Do they think I'm annoying? I don't know. Mm. Does everyone hate me? I don't know. So I'll just bake four different types of Bavarian sugar cookies and give them all to them. And then we'll be square instead of doing the harder thing, which is to say, Hey, I want to be your friend. Or to go up to a friend and go like, hey, you haven't answered my texts in a week and I'm beginning to wonder if you're upset with me. Mm -hmm. Like we would rather vomit in public than do that. (laughs) And it's so true, but it's like that doesn't, all you've done at the end of that wonderful baking session is made lots of cookies. You actually Mm -hmm. haven't done anything to make you feel more secure in that relationship. You Mm -hmm. have not expressed directly your needs to this person. And so honestly, you can't hold them to any expectation that they have taken your sugar cookies and been like, Amber is my very best friend and I love her (laughs) and I shall be there for her when she needs me. Like, so when they fail you, you're both like mad at them for failing you. But also Mm. then you're like, well, what did I expect them to do? Read my mind. And so then you're mad at you too. And it's just a cluster. And it's an unfair relationship dynamic that it has to be in, right? Yes. Interesting. Yes. And so part of my own work, and I'm curious if this is if this makes sense to you I'm from so excited. your perspective, mm-hmm. has been when am I doing this because I love it and I really want to do it and I think it'll be a fun way for us to experience this together. Yep. And when am I doing it for approval? Yeah. When How is do I hustling? separate the me from the what I'm doing to be approved yeah. of as me? Yeah. Yeah, because a lot That's, of those things that I truly love and enjoy doing and want to do were easy to convert into tools. Yes. Yeah. And so much yeah. of one of the um, themes of over control that I work through with clients is obsessive rehearsal. Mm. And so that's usually where the question goes when I have someone going, like, Am I making sugar cookies because I want to or because? I'm nervous. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you rehearsing in your brain? Are you really Mm -hmm. present while you are baking? Are you enjoying that process? And are you like, oh my gosh, 
this is so fun. Like you're immersed in the present moment of baking and that's part of the joy. And then you want to share some of that joy. And if they don't really like it, you're fine. Or are you baking and then obsessively rehearsing in your brain? Like mm-hmm. I'm going to give it to her and this is what her reaction is going to be. And she's going to say, oh my gosh, you shouldn't have. And these are so beautiful. And I'm going to go, of course, it's no big deal, even though it's obviously taking me four <laughs> hours. And yeah, of like all of this, like, am I going to have like a secret pride in how much work went into this, but I'm going to act like it was effortless. Yeah. But yeah. There's just like all of like, it's going like, what are you rehearsing in your brain? Are you rehearsing in your brain? And if so, what is that? Yeah. Usually can give yeah. us some good info. I have a good example of this that I want to share for our listeners. That I think might help. Yes. So there's a story of me from my childhood. I'm like 11 or 12. I've always loved baking and cooking. I just yes. love it. It suits me. I enjoy it. And it, it was wonderfully <laughs> reinforced by your growing up. So it was, oh, it was ideal. So I know. Like, this this overlap <laughs> really happened in the cooking space. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I made a, a pecan pie for Thanksgiving one year. And it didn't turn out quite right. Like the filling did not set right. No. So it was messy. It didn't have that beautiful cut. It was yeah. kind of falling all over the place. It was delicious. Of course it was. Yes. <laughs> but it it just wasn't right. And I was like crying because I was like, I ruined this thing that I was making for the family. And now it's bad and nobody's going to like it. And they're going to think I'm bad at cooking and like all of this. And I'm like so young. And to my parent, like my mom was even like, why? What is wrong? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, this is a lot for a pie. It's, it's good. Everybody likes it. See, it's fine. <laughs> I know, but it didn't hit the expectation. That is so right. much of... There is a massive part of RO that, especially for my people who are deconstructing, is so important. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if this is going to like trigger you or trigger anybody else, but it's a <laughs> forgiveness practice. Oh. And the idea is you acknowledge your grief, you process your grief, and you figure out a way to... I don't mean forgive as in like everything's fine now Mm -hmm. (laughs) or like that didn't hurt me or whatever, but you just find a way to make peace. I love that. Forward. And that is such an important part for over-control people because we have such high expectation Mm -hmm. of ourselves, Mm -hmm. of other people and of the world, which is awesome as part of what makes us get so much done, dude. But (laughs) But we fail our expectations all the time. So often, mm-hmm. I think like the one of the things that I'm trying to help people do is just go like, it's okay to be human. Mm-hmm. Other people are going to be human and the world is pretty crummy sometimes. So like your expectations are not going to be met. Yeah. And instead of going, I am an idiot and I just shouldn't have had that expectation. Mm-hmm. Instead, we need to go, you did. Let's grieve it. Yeah. And like make peace and move forward, whether that's a a pecan pie or about youth group or about purity culture or about, oh Lord, just like anything. Yeah. And I think about that. Like I think about that moment a lot and how Mm. in my head, what I had been taught and learned from family churches, anything that you do should meet a standard that if Jesus came in and Christ, 
I know it's terrible. <laughs> if, Jesus if Jesus came, came back right now, how would he feel about the cleanliness state of your room? Yeah, of your room, mm-hmm. your bathroom, like your your cooking. And so I'm like, I wouldn't serve this to Jesus. He would be so disappointed in me. And right, that's not that's not great. That's not a. And I carried that for a long time. Yeah. And recently. I made, um, I had a Thai themed dinner night for my partner's parents. It was great, but I made a Thai tea cheesecake and this is a brand new, yeah, it was really good. Yeah. You guys can't see her face. That sounds so good. (laughs) (laughs) And it's super simple too. It was, it was delicious. And I started out being like, okay, so I'm going to make this curry. I have to chop all these vegetables, all this stuff make this appetizer. And then I was like, I'm going to make the crust too, right? Like I'm oh, going to do the homemade grand crust, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Um, quickly realized that I was like, oh no, I am not going to have time to do all of this in this day and still enjoy my day or get any of the other things done. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'll compromise on the crust. I'll just buy a crust. Yeah. Turned out fine. You know, <laughs> it was great. Nobody even noticed. No. <laughs> but then... I couldn't find quite the right Thai tea powder because it's a specific powder that you yeah. need. It wasn't at a local Asian markets. Mm. And so I ended up having to make a compromise on that. But you know what? It was fine. Yes. And then I baked it and it, it like I wanted to cover it for the last part because it was starting to get brown on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the foil stuck to the top and made these little dents in it and like this whole yeah, thing. Yeah, so it wasn't right? as perfect. Um, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't smooth. everything I had hoped it was going to be. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? You live. I was fine. And it was delicious. Not only was I fine, it was fucking delicious. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody loved it. And everybody talks about it. And like, it wasn't, I didn't need to perform perfection to have a good experience. Yeah. And, and I had more joy when so I didn't. rewarding. Dude, it was. Yeah. Because then that helps reinforce a belief of like, people are excited to partake in the expressions of right. joy that I have. They're not excited to partake in my expressions of perfection. Right. And even more radical than those things, which like I thought about, I was like, wow, this is a radical change from who I used to be as a person. I made no apologies for it. Ooh, ooh. Right? I didn't sit down at the table and say, I'm so sorry I messed up this Tai Chi Chi. I was just, I literally was just like, I'm super excited to try this as a new recipe. Yeah. Let's eat it. Yes, let's see what Not another word needed to be said. No, because then everyone was like, this is so amazing. I can't believe you took it. Because we're eating cheesecake together. And and it was great. What isn't that? Oh, dude. So there's this part. And so like over control has three different little components to it. So nature, nurture, and coping. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nurture piece is where, this is where I was like, oh my gosh, my whole practice is about to be about radically open DBT for deconstruction. Because <laughs> um, the questions, the like uh, assessment questions for over-controlled nurture is like, did you grow up in an environment where making mistakes was not tolerated? where there were very, very high expectations, where it was not okay to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, some of that in my nuclear family, sure. But in my church community, for damn sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then that just begins to infiltrate everything. Because mm-hmm. what's funny to me about like baking and cooking, so often, I think, again, us like good girl, us like good Christian girls got really good at it. And if we liked mm-hmm. it, then like so much the better. Um, where was I going with this? I don't know. Of course you don't know. <laughs> you don't know 
Baking and cooking. Baking and cooking. Oh my God, Martha. Duh. Okay. <laughs> you can go back. I can cut this section and go back. So you can Girl, say I mean, or you can keep it in because we make mistakes and it's fine. That's true. Um, so, you know, we just get to have this be a modeling moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus, Mary, and Martha. Those are the sisters, right? See, it's been a hot second. Do I have most of the Bible <laughs> those memorized are the sisters. in my brain? Yes, I do. Uh, do I now have it memorized to the point where I can like very confidently quote scripture when angry? No, I used to yeah. have that, but I don't anymore. Um, <laughs> anyways, so like Martha's the one, <laughs> which one is like busy doing all of the cooking and cleaning? Martha. And we- Martha. So like mm-hmm. Martha's the one who gets chastised at the end, right? For being mm-hmm. the good housewife. Yeah. And I'm like, look at Jesus, like upending feminism, being like Mary, the girl right here, who's not doing anything to make anyone else comfortable. Who's just like wanting to be present. She doesn't have to earn my relationship. She just showed up for it. Yeah. This chick has got it. You over here, like dusting and cooking and providing and taking everyone's temperature. No. Yeah. That's like a straight up story in the Bible. And yet, did we, no, did we take any note of that? No, we were like, no, what we need to do before the guests come is have more quiet time. We need to sit at the feet of Jesus before Mm. we go into hostess mode. And then we have to still be hostess. (laughs) And we need to make it cultural in our churches that women behave like Martha because we need their free labor. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I can't. <laughs> I oh, can't I can. <laughs> Just because it makes me mad. There are things yeah. like that that make me mad. There's things about oh, we don't have to get on this soapbox. I don't have to get on the soapbox. Yesterday, I went into Hobby Lobby as one does mm. to get a Play-Doh set for my son. Yeah, and I saw this like 40 day sugar fast book that was oh, like wow. detox your body and your spirit and get closer to Jesus. Oh, and I was like the fuck why diet culture and religion this is this is what we needed great not mm, it just it makes me angry the way that people continually come up with like new rubrics and like shinier rules Mm -hmm. and be like and this is and we're just gonna like cherry pick some scripture at the beginning of every day yeah so you're going to feel like this is really in tune with what you want, who you are, when like that's not in the Bible. No. The Bible doesn't really talk not. about sugar. It just no. doesn't. That's about honey a little bit. but Yeah, but like usually in a nice this way. way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should put some in your coffee and relax. <laughs> oh my God, for real though. I say that to myself. Oh, so I'm tell me a little bit more about your practice. I really want guests to know where they can find you and sure. what, you know, maybe they're interested in this kind of therapy. Do okay. you have do you have open slots right now? I do. Yes. Yay. I pivoted this whole practice. Yeah, I pivoted my practice over the summer. Mm-hmm. Um and so I I do now have slots open for this work, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um so my website is www.sparrowtherapy.net. I like to start with a 15-minute phone call first mm-hmm. because the thing I don't want to happen is for you to sit down with me for an hour and then go, I don't know if this is a good fit. Mm-hmm. So I like to have a 15-minute phone call first so that way we can have a better idea of like, okay, this is worth our time and investment. Mm-hmm. and 
why start like the first three sessions are usually me just getting to better understand the nature, nurture, and coping of what you're, of what you're coming in with. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of my people are highly sensitive people. They're very sensitive to like noise and light and texture. Mm-hmm. Um, I have people who like, if there's crumbs on their floor, like they just really feel like the skin should just be peeled off of their body. They hate it so yeah. much. Yeah. Um, so being able to go like, are you detail oriented? Are you naturally organized? Are you shy and reserved? Like, how does this work for you? Looking into your nurture pieces. So this is where my like family therapy training really kicks in of being able to go like, what was important in your family? What was important in your church family? Because mm-hmm. sometimes that influences in bigger ways than our nuclear family. Yeah. And then how did you cope? How did you figure out how to not look like the human you are. <laughs> how did you figure out a way to be like, um, what's the opposite of subhuman? Oh no. How did you figure out how to be superhuman? There, there it is. And then once we're getting in a groove about that, that's when I have a private audio class called skills class. Mm-hmm. So that's when I then get people started on that. So we'll have one-on-one therapy where we're like, it's really tailored to the specific person and what they're looking for and being with them. And skills class is the like general, like radically open skills. So that way they can be continually learning and growing outside of that session. And then if they have questions, they can bring it into session and go like, what in the world is self-inquiry? This seems like a very difficult skill. And I'll be like, it is. Let's get in. <laughs> <laughs> That's really neat. I like that there's an outside of therapy element to it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, my therapist gives me a lot of books and articles and things to read to kind of help deepen my understanding because I'm a reader. Yeah. I like that you've done an audio format though, because not yeah. a lot of folks have the patience for, and I get it. Like it yeah. does take patience to sit down and read and like, right. I like that you've done an audio format for that for more learning. Yes. It's cool. Yeah. My hope was a lot of, most of my people are really, really busy. They're like either parents or teachers or nurses or some combination of all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so podcasts were usually the easiest way to get that information. And so it just made sense to me to go ahead and essentially make like a private podcast that they can tune into. That's between like 30 and 45 minutes. Um, and so that way, yeah, they have that extra boost if they need it or when they need it. That's awesome. Yeah. Folks can also follow along with you on Instagram, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love your Instagram. Thank you. It's at sparrow underscore soul work. Um, yeah, I try to have some fun there and blend my love of radically open and deconstruction and tarot and how the Mm -hmm. three of those, like the three of those like work really well inside of a therapy room. Most of the time, Mm -hmm. figuring out how to translate that to an Instagram account is really fun. (laughs) (laughs) You do a great job of it. I look forward to seeing your posts on the now I see Instagram feed because I'm just like, these are so great. Um, They're practical and fun and and sweet. And I love them. Yeah. And for the folks who are listening who are like, what do you mean you use tarot and therapy? We are not magicians. We are not witches. Oh my God, never. I'm <laughs> never. not a witch. I am not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. I really love 
the so the way I use tarot, I use tarot in two different ways. One for my people who are really open to are like, Ooh, tarot sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to create new spiritual practices and tarot cards kind of fit into that. Then that can be kind of a regular part of session. I do not fortune tell. I just don't. What I find the cards really interesting is they basically are 78 different little stories. There's like 78 mm-hmm. different little parables. And so we get to introduce these different concepts, emotions, and stories into the therapy space. And sometimes it's easier to process when we're not talking about you. I used Mm -hmm. to do this when, so when I was a play therapist, I would do this with kids where like we would read a story or I would have like these story cards, not tarot cards, just like story cards. And it was easier for kids to be able Sometimes if you're not so wrapped up in thinking about like, I'm just such a terrible person and I should do better. Mm-hmm. If you're looking yeah. at other people, you can kind of see a little bit more clearly. Yeah. And or so t- concept. Yeah. And so tarot offers that. And then for the main like mindfulness practice of radically open is self-inquiry where we turn towards our distress and we ask ourselves, what can we learn here? Mm-hmm. Which is really very difficult. And so sometimes when that becomes very difficult, being able to externalize, that's the therapisty word, being able to pull a tarot card and being able to go like, what can I learn in this card? What in my emotion and my distress that I'm experiencing right now in my body, Mm -hmm. do I see in this card? And what do I feel like the figures or the things in this card can be learning? there. Mm. It just helps. It can help facilitate that question and that learning in a safer way than sometimes we feel like we can do in our own bodies. Yeah. I like that. And I love the self-reflection practice that a card can bring out, right? Like, okay, maybe this isn't my situation, but how does this apply in other ways. And it's, it's like little lenses to look at situations through in some totally. ways, which calls to my literature major self very much. So I love yeah. a good lens to process. <laughs> so they're just neat. And so I really, I'm glad that you explained that because I want guests to understand like yes. how powerful this can be as a tool. It's yes. not a magical practice. It's not. It is not a magical know. practice. No, I am in no way. I really try to make very clear the places where I am bringing my expertise mm-hmm. and the places I'm not. Um, because in so many ways, my clients really are more the expert in the room than I am. They're the expert mm-hmm. on them. They're the expert on their lives. Mm-hmm. And I am going to defer to them on what something means, on how their body feels, on whether a certain like suggestion or skill is going to work for them. And so bringing in tarot is just kind of a collaborative way to bring mm-hmm. in their expertise and maybe some of mine. But again, I do not tell your fortune. I wish I could. <laughs> I would charge so very much more money if that so was very possible. Much. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's awesome. I have enjoyed this conversation so much. I hope that listeners like get an insight into how many different types of therapy they, there are. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had another therapist on the show who practices very differently. Yes. And it's so you mentioned having that 15 minute call. Yeah. Anytime 
you're looking for a therapist or you're looking to switch up your therapist. Yes. Have that call. Request that call if they don't offer it. Yes. Don't spend your time making yourself feel worse with somebody who's not a good fit for you. Genuinely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I like that you brought that up and I hope listeners feel empowered to seek out someone who fits them. Totally. Practices in a way that they they feel comfortable with and it makes them feel at ease. Because that relaxed state that you get into is what's going to help you. Oh my gosh. Process. um, Yeah, that's where the the real magic happens. Yeah, I think so. Studies have just shown over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that the most important part of the therapeutic process is that relationship. It's not necessarily Mm. the particular model. But it is the like, are you with a person who you think gets you? Yeah. And so like for some people, they like the fact that I can speak evangelical, that I know what like a DTR is, that I'm able mm-hmm. to like, we can riff on the various like altar calls we've heard over time. <laughs> yeah. And for some people that does not work because they're not coming from an evangelical background. Maybe they're coming from a Mormon background. Maybe they're coming from a more like fundamentalist place than I mm-hmm. came from. And so Sometimes a different perspective is helpful. Sometimes they're like, I really don't want to have to explain my culture to you in the middle of having therapy as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So finding somebody that you feel safe with and feel comfortable with and feel understood by is the most important thing, period. Yeah, I agree. Love that. This has been a fantastic and fun conversation. <laughs> I have loved it so much. Thank you. thank you again for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah. So we've come to the part in the episode that I hate and love yeah, because yeah. it means we've come to the end, <laughs> but I love these questions. They're good questions. So, yeah. So first, what is something you see clearly now that you didn't see before? when you were the most immersed in your religion? Mm. How beautiful it is to be human. Oh, yes. Flaws and all. That Mm. having foibles, having, making mistakes and learning is really beautiful Mm-hmm. And makes life so much richer and more dynamic, makes relationships so much stronger and more meaningful. And all the things I was afraid to do yeah. back in the day, like it makes life better. Mm, it's so true. Mm-hmm. It's so true. The messiness is where the fun is. It's, it's great. Where the fun is yeah that like perfection is unattainable mm-hmm. joyless and exhausting mm. joyless is a great way to put it because it really <laughs> isn't any fun no, <laughs> it is a hustle you keep yeah. thinking like i'll be happy when i achieve x and of course you never achieve it because perfection is not achievable and so then you just beat up on yourself going like why couldn't i do the thing mm. That I can't do, but I've been told I should be able to. (laughs) (laughs) Not a great way to live. Mm -mm, mm -mm. All right. And my last, yeah, no, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) So our last question is, 
what have been some of your greatest moments of joy in rebuilding your life after leaving your faith? Mm. So like I have some like classic answers, right? Like I think being able, I think having my son is obviously Mm. like massive joy. That's not necessarily something I got to do because I left my faith. It's just something that also, that just timeline wise occurred. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I also, but maybe it is, I really like being a parent, not thinking about not having like really strict faith stuff around, Mm. not having to like, just being able to delight in him and be present with him and make mistakes with him and him make mistakes Mm -hmm. with me and figure that out. Like that feels really, really joyous. And then the other part is honestly like therapy is Mm -hmm. great. I fucking love my job and being able to sit with people as they, I think therapy at its best for me is where I just am like holding space. This is a very therapisty little phrase. It's like a physical <laughs> phrase. Um, but watching people like just do incredible work, mm. watching people like uncover and go like, oh my God, I have been carrying all the shame around with me because of what I was taught. Yeah. And I don't think it's true anymore or yeah. being able to go like, oh, I have like been mildly disassociated forever and now I'm going to try and get back in my body because that's mm. safe. Like those types of big moments are so fucking fun <laughs> and yeah. being able to like guide people to that place where they get to like have their own inner wisdom and self-trust is just, yeah. that's where it's at. And it's fucking awesome. I love that. Oh, this has been insightful and healing and funny and great. I'm so glad we got to do this. Um, For the guests. Yeah, absolutely. For our guests, I will have um, your socials and pertinent information linked in the show notes so they can come and find you. Yes. And you should definitely follow along and find a good therapist if you don't have one. 100%. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Please, please, please do. (laughs) Well, thank you again for being here. This has been awesome. Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you for tuning in to this episode and being on this journey with me. You can find resources and links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, and review, and follow along on social media to help us grow. Now I See is independently funded by me. If you'd like to help support the show, you can donate directly or purchase a merch item on the website. Music for this episode was made by Alana Sabatini, a former faithful and talented musician. And finally, this podcast is made possible by the incredible team at Softer Sounds, a feminist podcast studio for entrepreneurs and creatives, providing technical skill with tender support.